I'm uh, Josh Rieger. I'm with you again this morning and uh, glad to be with you one more week, although I know that Chad is really looking forward to being back and uh, getting into Faithful Still, and I, I think I heard that he's really looking forward to preaching Philippians 1, 12 to 18, so uh, Lord willing, next week he'll be with us and, and able to preach again. Uh, thank you for putting up with me one more week. Uh, I love uh, the psalm that we read earlier, Psalm 67. I don't know if you ever thought about that before, the, the opening verses... Uh, are Aaron's blessing uh, from number six. Remember, there's this ironic benediction, this blessing he's supposed to pronounce on Israel. And it's Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. But in Psalm 67, it makes it a missionary psalm. And it doesn't say Yahweh, it says God. Because he's using the name that the nations know him by, not the name that Israel knows him by. And it says the benediction, but it changes the name, and then it talks about how the nations are going to benefit from God's blessing to Israel. And it's, it's uh, as a missionary, it's a, it's a really favorite psalm. So uh, it was good to, to read that and then sing these songs. The last two songs took my voice away a little bit, so hopefully it's still here to preach. Uh, I, I enjoy singing those songs. And uh, we sang, Is anyone worthy? He is worthy of all glory and honor. And that's what this passage we're looking at this morning is about. If you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Last week I read Leviticus 16, which is a long chapter. And this week I'm turning to the longest chapter in the New Testament. I'm not going to read the whole chapter though. Um, we're going to start at verse 25 and we're not going to read to the end. We're just going to read uh, a, a little bit, but it's still a, a longer passage this morning. I'm going to read John 6, 25 to 59. Let's read together. When they found him on the other side of the sea, Jesus, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, 
that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of my world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Thus ends this reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts. As one minister I was listening to this week said, you could preach at least a dozen sermons on these verses, and we don't have time for that today. So uh, we're going to look at a few things, but, but there's just so much in this chapter. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. It's the place where Jesus speaks of himself more than anywhere else in the Gospels. Uh, it's, it's amazing, some of the things he tells us. And, and actually, as I was looking at sermons on John 6 online this week, I, I pulled up Sermon Audio, and I was just looking at sermons in John 6 and what some had preached on here. And it seems like that most of the sermons on this chapter were on verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him. And... And basically, there were those who were preaching a series on John, and they were just kind of going through. And then every other sermon that wasn't a part of a ser- sermon series was on that, on that verse, it seemed like. Every other sermon uh, on this chapter dealt with the issue of irresistible grace and, and God's sovereign power and, and salvation. And, and certainly, that's an understandable uh, practice. It's a strong verse. Actually, that word draws there is kind of a weak translation of that of that word, that Greek word. 
Uh, in, in Acts 16.9, remember it's the chapter uh, where, in fact, Chad referenced it just a couple weeks ago. In Acts 16, it's the chapter where Paul goes to Philippi and plants the church in Philippi. And uh, he goes and there's this lady following him around and, and screaming out. And finally he casts out the demon and, and the people who own her start losing all these sorts of money. So they're angry. And so it says in Acts 16.19, But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. What's that dragged? It's the same word. So it makes sense that people would focus on that verse. We could certainly talk about the theology of that issue or many other issues from this passage, but we're looking at about half the chapter today, this long chapter, and that's not the central issue of the chapter, and so that's not what we're going to focus on. Several years ago, I read a really, uh, a really good book by a guy named Chris Anderson, a pastor in, in Atlanta, uh, called The God Who Satisfies. And it's on John 4. And John 4 is the story of the, the woman at the well, the woman who's had five husbands, and now the man she's living with isn't her husband. And, and it's, it's a great book. And he, he talks about the fact that the whole of that chapter is about the God who satisfies. Sinclair Ferguson uh, tells us that the whole of John is actually a book about the God who satisfies in Christ. He shows how every chapter or every story in some way points to something that is not enough and then shows you that you need the one who truly satisfies. So you've got the the wine that runs out at the wedding and and then God gives the wine that, that is enough. And then you've got the uh, Nicodemus who's born, but it's not a good enough birth, and he needs a better birth. And you've got the woman at the well who needs something more to satisfy her because the worship she has is not enough. And Sinclair Ferguson, when he's saying this, says that this chapter here in front of us basically asks us three questions. Where am I really looking for lasting satisfaction. One. Two, what do I see in Jesus? Is he the bread of life without whom I can't live? And three, do I have somewhere else to find eternal life? Because if you do, it's a lot easier and go find it now. And, and the answer is clearly no. There's nowhere else you can find eternal life. And, and in this teaching from John 6, verses 25 and following, uh, Jesus is teaching in the wake of a great miracle. It's one of the, maybe the only miracle, but certainly one of very few that appears in all four Gospels. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And it actually says 5,000 men. And so a lot of people, you know, is he being literal with men or is he just using men to describe everyone? It could be 15, 20,000 people there that he feeds with just these five loaves and two fishes. And it's an amazing miracle because as we see in this chapter, we're going to touch on in a moment, it's, it's hearkening back to Old Testament theme all the way through the Bible. The, God is the one who provides. Jehovah Jireh, God my provider, and he's the one who gives bread. 
So he gives them manna in the wilderness, which is referenced in this chapter, isn't it? And he, he uh, gives them food again and again and again. He, he gives Ruth and Naomi. Uh, we just heard about this several weeks ago. They're, they're, uh, Naomi and her family, they're off in Moab, and they hear that God has given bread again in Israel, and they return to Israel. And then you come to Song of Solomon, and he, he lays out a banqueting table, and his banner over them is love. And, and you see this again and again, and you come to the New Testament, and he gives the Lord's Supper, and you get to the very end in Revelation 19 and 20, and he, he lays out the wedding feast of the Lamb. And, and God God is always feeding. And here Jesus is feeding because Jesus is God. And, and subsequently in this teaching, John is teaching us uh, the, the three facts that he tells us at the end of the book are the three facts he's trying to teach us through the whole book. One, Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. Two, Jesus is the Son of God. And three, it's only by believing in him that you might have life. That's what... Jesus says here. And John's pressing home these three points in every chapter. And yet, even though Jesus is clear here, the multitude just doesn't get this. So Jesus just keeps driving it home to them. So I'm going to take as a title this morning, I am the bread of life. So that's what Jesus says here. But I want us to see three things as we're looking at the bread of life in John chapter 6 and in Jesus' teaching here. First of all, there's an inordinate hunger for earthly things. There's an inordinate hunger for earthly things. In the wake of this miracle, five loaves and two fishes, if you go back and read the beginning of the chapter, the, the people, and, and this is a massive multitude, whether it's 5,000 or fifteen or 20,000, I mean, this is a massive multitude. There's there's not that many towns bigger than 5,000 people in Palestine in this day. And they begin to believe in Jesus. This multitude does. In fact, they tell us two ways that they begin to believe in Moses. First of all, we are in Jesus, rather. First of all, they tell us in, in verse 14 that he's, he's the prophet that was to come. He's the prophet that was to come. And I don't know if you remember, but way back in Deuteronomy 18, right at the end of his ministry, Moses says, prophesying about the Messiah, there's going to come a prophet who is greater than I am. And he tells them that Jesus is going to come. And people are thinking, this might be the Messiah. I think this is the Messiah. We've got to follow him. He's done this incredible miracle. And they believe it so much that they, they say, well, he's the king. He's the son of David, the king that's going to be raised up. And so they seek to raise him up to be king. And, and, and then he's trying to get away from this, them because of this. And so he, he sends his disciples on ahead of him across the water. And then he walks on water and joins them. And then we come to this teaching when they find him on the other side of the water. They, they saw that he was prophet. They saw he was king. They didn't understand what that meant, but they certainly missed that he was also their priest. And so now they're coming to him, and they're looking for one thing. And in light of what I just told you, we should guess that the one thing they're looking for is him. But it's not. That's what he tells them in the opening verses. You're just looking for bread. You're not looking for me, you're looking for bread. Uh, bread's not bad, it's, it's nourishment for, for life. We talk about our daily bread. 
And it's not the modern day with grocery stores and convenience stores on every corner where you can pick up anything and, and you can go get bread at the, at the grocery store when you do your weekly shopping or, you know, if you forget it, you can go somewhere else down the street, a convenience store and pick it up and, and, and it's easy to get. You certainly don't have to grind the uh, flour out and then, you know, uh, cultivate the yeast and make the bread on your own and that's what they would have had to do. And so now they've found this powerful king and prophet, and you don't even have to go down to the convenience store. He just makes it. And it makes life easy, and and they want the bread. I mean, what do they want when they want this? They want a really good social welfare system. They want a king who can just give them all the food they need. All the bread they want. And, and then they also want a king who's going to get them free from Rome. He's going to give them liberty. They want an alleviation of suffering. And the problem was that the, the miracle of making the bread was a sign. It was pointing to something. But they missed the sign, and they, ju- they missed what it was pointing to, and they just wanted the sign. It, it's like, you know, if, if you um, were going to Disneyland... And, you know, you got close to Disneyland and you saw the sign Disneyland and you got out of the car and you just took it down and put it in the car. We got the sign and you left and went home. I mean, it's a little bit ridiculous. They wanted the sign rather than the thing it was pointing to. I, I, over the last uh, several months, my wife and I make trips once a week or maybe even more to MD Anderson for treatments. And, and at first when we moved here, we were, we were going to MD Anderson up in Houston uh, near Herman Park and then we'd been going for treatments into uh, League City to their hospital over there for several months and a few weeks ago I had to go back to uh, the main hospital uh, up at uh, uh, up near Herman Park again and it had been several several months since I'd gone up there and so I was really focusing on my navigation system because I forgot exactly where I was going, and I don't know, Houston like the back of my hand, and so we go up 288, and we get off at McGregor Street, and know that area, but when you get off, uh, when you get to the end of the off-ramp, you can't turn left, because it's a one-way street going right. You have to cross over the bridge, and then turn left to go left, and I was so focused on my navigation system that I just completely missed the sign. And I turned left, and all of a sudden, all of the traffic was coming right at me. And um, thankfully, I was safe, and I got, I got out of it. I missed the sign and took a wrong turn, but the problem was here. They, they saw the sign, and they just didn't comprehend it. They didn't see what it was pointing to. They, they thought the sign was what they wanted. Maybe they willfully ignored it. Jesus did this great sign And the whole purpose of it was to point to who he was. And they only wanted him for the bread he could give. And the reality is, we have this same inordinate desire for earthly things. Even even Christians, it's something we struggle with. We want earthly things more than heavenly ones. And it takes all sorts of, of different forms. It's often the desire of our hearts, though. Sometimes it's, it's really sinful desires for earthly things. And, and actually, I think a few weeks ago when Jared was preaching, he, he really helpfully pointed out some of these things. We, we often call them earthly lusts. We may want our physical desires fulfilled in, in ways that gratify the flesh. You know, that could be it. It could be that we're lazy and we just want rest. 
Could be that we're slovenly and and we just make a mess and don't clean up after ourselves because we don't want to do the work. It could be that we're gluttons and we eat and eat and eat past when we should. I'm sometimes a glutton. I, I know that sometimes I have these desires. Could take the form of an utter commitment to keeping ourselves entertained. Can't have a moment of peace or quiet. Got to be doing something. This is, it's got to be somewhere nearby so we can look at it. We've even got watches now. We can see it there. It might be sexual lusts that our culture tries so hard to inflame. I, I was watching something recently. There was some news story and somebody says, does everything have to be about sex? And that's what it feels like sometimes. There are so many ways that we seek to satisfy our earthly lusts. Eve looked at the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil after Satan had tempted her and, and she saw that it was beautiful to the eyes and to be desired for food and that it would make one wise. One John, in First John rather, John talks about the same thing. He, he calls it the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Paul says, I mean, Paul the apostle, after he's a Christian, tells us that the things that he wants to do, he can't do. And the things that he doesn't want to do, he does. He struggles with this. And there's a selfishness in seeking to satisfy these desires that always puts ourself and our desires first. We're more important than everyone around us and we're more important than God too. It's idol worship to be controlled by our earthly lusts. But we also find this inordinate hunger for earthly things sometimes, like in this story, takes the form of earthly blessings. There is nothing wrong when you are hungry and you've been out listening to preaching all day and you've seen some miracles that the Son of God has done and you haven't eaten a thing all day and you're starving and God gives you bread to be amazed by that and think, I want more of that. There's nothing wrong. That's an earthly blessing. There's no lust or or sinful kind of thing there being held up. It's bread for a hungry person. And sometimes that happens to us. We turn it wrong. The Bible warns us about this. Taking the good gifts that God gives and then making those gifts our chief joy rather than the one who gives them to us. That's, that's always a danger. Sometimes it can be, these aren't negative things. Sometimes it's comfort. Comfort's a wonderful thing. When God gives you seasons in your life of comfort, what a blessing that is. It's something when, when you don't have anything to complain about. And, and the Lord has just given you a time when there's peace. What a blessing that is. But we can become people who are so consumed by that that that's all we look for. Or shelter. We can idolize our house. Maybe that takes the form of, you know, getting on the housing ladder and looking for a bigger and better house every few years. Or maybe it's just fixing up our house in just the perfect way and, and having it in a way that is the envy of the rest of our neighbors. Or, or financial security, which could be being wealthy, or it could just be having the best retirement options, or whatever else it is. A good education. God wants us to be educated. He encourages education. But we can idolize these things. Orderliness. We can become control freaks or 
whatever else. And then these things that are good, orderliness. God is orderly. But then we turn it into something that's inordinate. And these earthly blessings become our desire that we want most. And then what happens is the reason that we're seeking God is not because we want Him, but because we want these blessings He gives. This is what these people here are doing. And there's a great way to test ourselves. What do our prayer lives look like? Last time you were at a prayer meeting or in a small group and they said, what prayer requests do you have? And and what did you ask for? Was it all earthly things? Eh, sometimes that happens. Sometimes you're in that situation. But when you look at, you know, 10 weeks in a row, I haven't asked for anything spiritual. It's all been earthly and all I care about it. And, and it begins to show us what matters to us. The Bible gives us a great picture. It's a one-verse parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 13 about how we're actually supposed to look at earthly things versus heavenly things. The man who hears the gospel and believes it is like the man who goes out in a field and he's walking out in a field and he finds a treasure and it's so valuable to him that he goes home and he sells everything he has so he can buy that field. He sells his home, he sells his food, he sells his clothing, he sells everything he has just to get that field. And, and we don't often treat God like this. We, we like God, but we also like all of these other things. Do we follow God because we actually love him and treasure him above all else? Or do we follow him for the gifts he gives? And, and maybe we started out right, but now we're recognizing that we like our comforts and we like our entertainment. How do we view heaven? I don't want to leave because I really like it here. I mean, I'm glad that it's there when I do have to leave, but I really kind of like it here. I don't want to go. And the problem is this isn't a one-time question, as I've pointed out a little bit. It's a, it's a daily diagnosis of our condition. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. These people in, in 1 Corinthians 13 and 2 Peter 1, when, when the apostles say, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith, they're speaking to Christians who have taken their eyes off of Jesus and they've placed them too much on earthly things. And we can be in the same boat. And Jesus tries to point this problem out to the people. And he shows them the second thing I think we see in this passage. The second thing that we're going to look at today, which is an incomparable hunger for heavenly things. An incomparable hunger for heavenly things. I talked about how this was a sign that was pointing to Christ and who he was. And, and many people in church history, as you read this passage, have tried to say that this whole passage, all that it's really about is the Lord's Supper. And I, I don't want to say that there's no connections between this passage and the Lord's Supper. I think there's things we can learn about the Lord's Supper from this passage, but that's not what Jesus is teaching about here. There's still months or years to go before he institutes the Lord's Supper uh, towards the end of the Gospels on the night before he was crucified. But this passage does share something very important with the Lord's Supper, as Sinclair Ferguson actually points out. Just like the bread here, the bread and the wine at the Lord's Supper point towards something else. 
they point towards Christ. They're, they're signs. When you take the Lord's Supper, what do you get? You just get bread and wine? It's just a, you know, every little bit at church, we come hungry and we just have to get some bread and wine so that we're not hungry anymore. No, we get Christ. It's pointing us to something else. And this was pointing to Christ. In this passage, the people are demonstrating very clearly that their desire is for earthly things. And so the interesting thing is what you see is they're looking back on one of the greatest miracles that has happened in the nation of Israel. Longing for those days, the the manna in the wilderness. It's funny because when they were in the wilderness, they didn't like those days very much. But now they're longing for those days when there was manna in the wilderness. And, And that's what they want. They're clothing their desire for earthly things in kind of religious language, but it's, it's the manna they want. And, and that was a remarkable miracle because Moses didn't just feed 20,000 people for one day like Jesus did here. Moses fed 2 million people for 40 years. That's a pretty, pretty amazing miracle. Every day, every week, except the Sabbath. And even on the Sabbath, he fed them. He just gave them twice as much the day before. And so the people are saying, well, I mean, Jesus, that's a pretty good parlor trick, but, you know, you could do better than that. You know, did you notice what they said when he tells them about the bread that gives life? Give it to us always. That's what Moses did. And Jesus points out the fallacy of their entire outlook there in verses 47 to 50. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And and he says, you know, the problem is, first of all, Moses didn't give you the bread. God gave you the bread. You say that I'm the prophet like Moses who's going to give you bread like Moses, but God gave you the bread the first time and God's giving you the bread the second time. And and you're missing the point of the story. Second of all, maybe he gave it for 40 years, but they still died. I give it once. I'm going to die on the cross and I'm going to be raised again and you're going to have my flesh to believe in and trust in and it's once for all. Last week we looked at what Hebrews said as we were looking at the sacrifice in Leviticus 16. In Hebrews it said that the amazing thing about the sacrifice is Christ is once for all. Blood and, the blood of bulls and goats can't atone for sin, but Jesus died once for sin. This was more than just lifeless bread, and, and they missed it. And, and 1 Corinthians 10 shows us that the bread in the wilderness, the manna, the, the rock that Moses struck, it all pointed to Christ. Those who ate the bread and drank the water from the rock in faith, Corinthians tells us, actually fed on Christ. In fact, it ties it to the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 10. But the multitudes didn't care about that. All they wanted was physical, temporal nourishment, that social welfare system. They wanted bread. When what does Ephesians say is offered in Christ? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. I'll forgo that. I just want the bread. 
And, and this thing is showing us there's an incomparable desire for heavenly things. That's nothing like this inordinate desire for earthly things. Jesus is trying to drive them to the fact that their problem, and not just their problem, but ours, is much bigger than any earthly need or desire. And, and what earthly needs or desires we, do we have? Every one of us probably, or, or very nearly every one of us, comes this morning with some physical or emotional or psychological need. We're all, maybe it has to do with this year-long pandemic and all of the effects of that. Maybe it has to do with, with illness. Maybe it has to do with grief. Maybe it has to do with something else. We all bring needs. But when we have these needs, are, are we looking down in front of us saying, I just need it fixed right now. I need to feel better tomorrow. I need to have what I have tomorrow. Jesus doesn't want our eyes pointed at the ground. He's saying, look up. If you eat this bread, even the bread I gave you, you're going to be hungry again tomorrow. In fact, that's why you're asking for more bread. But if you look at the one the sign's pointing to, the true bread from heaven, you'll never be hungry again. Because spiritual death is worse. It's not your greatest fear, but it should be. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, Don't fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's not what they're worried about. They're just worried about today. The greater part of our daily worries and anxieties are for earthly concern, but we need to be desperately concerned for our souls. What else does Jesus say in, in the Sermon on the Mount? Don't store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. But recognizing this incomparable desire for heavenly things that's better, we've got to be asking... I agree with you, but how do I do that? Well, Jesus shows us very clearly in this passage where we find our true bread. And, and the third thing I think we see here this morning is Christ who satisfies. Christ who satisfies. Peter shows us the right answer a little bit past where... We read, in fact, the very next verse after we finished our reading, many of the disciples, not the twelve, but the other disciples, these five to twenty thousand who were following him, they heard this and they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? A couple verses later, in verse 66, we read, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him. And before I go on, you know, we criticize Peter a lot. And when you read the Gospels, Peter deserves a lot of criticism. And he, he makes a fool of himself all the time, but not here. This is where we ought to be praising Peter. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed. And we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Right answer. 
He doesn't often give the right answer, but he does here. I was listening to uh, one of the Christian groups who's become my favorite just the last couple of years. I, I didn't like some of their earlier albums as much, but, but their, their new one is really good. They're called The Corner Room, and all they do is sing uh, scripture. Maybe you've, maybe you've listened to them. And uh, I was listening on the way, and they were singing Zechariah 9.9, which you probably think of as the verse that they quoted on Palm Sunday. This is what we're meant to have when we look at Christ. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. We, Jesus says, need to believe that he is the Christ. The prophet, the king of Israel, that's, that's what John says at the end. He writes this book so that we'll believe that Jesus is the Christ. And then we, we also need to believe that he's the son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's, we see it right here. In fact, this is one of those passages where the doctrine of the Trinity is, is so incredibly evident. Verses 37 to 40, verses 44 to 46. He is very God of very God and very light of very light, as the creed says. But that's not all. He also wants us to know, and John does, and Jesus says this here. We need to know that it is only by believing in him that we might have life. And if, if we believe that he's the Christ, believe that he's the Son of God, and, and that the only way that we can have eternal life is by believing in him, then he's really lovely. You begin to understand why, you know, the, the Bible calls him the fairest of 10,000, the lily of the valley, the rose of Sharon, why it, it talks about how ruddy his features are, although we don't use that phrase very often when we're talking about how handsome somebody is, but why it talks about his loveliness and his beauty and his glory and why we sing songs like we did, is, is anyone worthy? He is. And there's, there's two parts to this. We can only have life in Christ, but we can also only live the Christian life in Christ. So it's not, as I said earlier, a one-time thing that we did some point in the past, or we do today, and then we move on with life, but it's, it's a daily reality of the Christian life. We have life from Christ and life in Christ. And it's only when He is our all that we have hope. Our hope is not some earthly gift that we can only receive from him, some bread that will keep coming every day. We don't want to come to him seeking only worldly blessings. We come to Christ recognizing that, you know that treasure in the field that the guy sold everything to go get? That treasure is Christ. I love there's a, a quote by Piper that's uh, pretty well-known John Piper, where he says that, um, you know, we often look at Jesus as if he is the key to heaven. And, and that's true, but the problem is we forget that he is heaven. He, he is the thing that we should love 
and treasure and value and desire above all things. There's life in him that makes dead arise. There's eternal spiritual life in him. And he is the way that we, we live by faith. We, we need to recognize that the Christian life will devolve so easily into so many kind of mundane daily desires and earthly things where we're thinking about earthly things. This is what happens in Acts 6. And the apostles are preaching and they're, they're praying and then there's this big argument between the Greek widows and the, and the Hebrew widows because the Hebrew widows are getting all the food that people are giving to help the needy in the church and the Greek widows aren't getting any and so they, they create these deacons who give the food. Because the, it's the Christian life, it's the church, but they just start looking at all of these earthly things. And, and we can do that so easily if we don't continue daily to make Christ our only hope, our only desire, our chief delight, if we don't continue to examine ourselves, testing our hearts and our desires. We see an example of this uh, going back to what I said earlier. When we come to the Lord's table, don't we? When we read in 1 Corinthians 11 where it talks about the Lord's table, we're, we're fed, but we're also supposed to examine ourselves, aren't we? when we come to the Lord's table. And, and, and we don't just do it once. We don't have the Lord's Supper once and then never have it again. We do it repetitively and we examine ourselves again and again. And when we come to the table, what do we do? We have the, the gospel preached to us. We're Christians who maybe even Christians for years or decades, maybe half a century, and we've been Christians a long time, and yet we come to the Lord's Supper, and what is preached to us? Christ died for you, and his body is your only hope, and his blood is your only hope for being cleansed of sins. And you say, well, wait, if you've been a Christian for decades, why do you need to hear that again? Because it's not just what you need to hear to be saved, but it is what you need to live. Forgiveness for sins, reconciliation with God, and and the great thing about this is Jesus says that he's going to give us life and that more abundantly. And it doesn't start sometime in the future. What that tells us is that we already have abundant life. Because we have Christ. But if we chase after earthly things, we'll be hungry tomorrow. And then maybe we'll get a little bit more. And God is incredibly long-suffering. He keeps giving us more, even when we're looking at earthly things. And he gives us food today and... We want more, and he gives us food tomorrow, and we want more, and he keeps doing it until we finally start looking at him, and he draws us to him. And when we seek God in Christ, we're going to sing in just a moment, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And that's what we, that's what we look for. So I just encourage you, read the Bible and love Jesus more. Because it, it's what will help you live the Christian life. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you that Jesus didn't just do one miracle. He didn't just do two. He kept giving them signs that pointed to himself. And then when he left, he gave them his spirit that we might have his word to keep seeing him pointed to. And he gave us elders and ministers who will continue to point to him. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to fix our eyes on him, to turn our eyes upon Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We continue to worship.